Welcome, men, to another episode of Maximus Men Striving for Greatness. And this week, we have our first international guest on the show. We're very blessed to be joined by author and speaker and editor uh, extraordinaire, especially in the area of, of theology, Catholic theology, Eric Sammons. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be the first international guest. Yeah, it's it's awesome to have you. And uh, it's bright and early in the morning for Eric, and it's late at night here in Sydney. So thank you, Eric. I haven't bright yet. Up <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So last time on the show, we had Daniel Ang from the Sydney Centre for Evangelization talking about the landscape of Catholic men. That over the last 20 years in Australia, we've lost 100,000 Catholic men in our pews at Mass. Now, Eric, you caught our attention from an article that you wrote for Crisis Magazine called No Church for Young Men, and you actually provided some really practical steps, some strategies, which for some might seem a little bit controversial, but they are really tried and tested, and we're going to get into those in this conversation. But before we do that, we might just begin with our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving God, um, we dedicate this conversation to all young men and boys as well, struggling with their faith, questioning their faith, or young men who may have left the church or feel disillusioned with the church. Um, we pray in the words that Jesus taught us that that you might bring them back home and that this conversation would be fruitful in doing so. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And St. Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Great. So, Eric, first of all, in your article, you sort of pit youth ministry against men's ministry. And you sort of make the claim that the church needs to prioritize evangelizing men. Can you explain why we should be putting our resources primarily towards evangelizing men. Right. It is a little counterintuitive what I'm saying. We, the church spends an inordinate amount of resources on or directed towards our youth. And the intention behind that is absolutely perfect because we know if the youth leave the church, then we have no future church, I mean, to speak of. And so I understand why we do that. But I'm arguing that, that it, those are mostly misdirected funds by by directing our resources directly towards the youth, we're actually uh, misdirecting our funds. I believe it should be more geared towards, for example, particularly men's ministry, particularly young men. And when I say young men, I'm talking about people, uh, you know, men who are adults. So they're at over 18, 20 years old until maybe they're young, early 30s, something like that. No, it's not me. <laughs> um, but these are men who are getting married and having kids. And what studies have shown that men, fathers particularly, fathers are the most important factor 
in whether or not a child will continue to practice his parents or her parents' religion. And this is actually goes across all religions, Catholicism, you know, Protestantism, uh, Judaism, what, whatever the case may be. But if a young father practices his Catholic faith, his kids are very likely to do so. Now, I think every youth minister knows that parents are a key factor. I mean, any good youth minister knows you got to include the parents on some level. But what I have, what, what the studies at least have shown is that it's really the fathers that are the key. If a mother practices her faith, but the father doesn't, there's still a really good chance that, that the youth will fall away. Whereas if a father practices faith and the mother sadly doesn't, the youth likely will stay, will be more, much more likely to stay in the faith. And it's because fathers are natural leaders. This is how God created the family. This is how you know God created us, that we follow the leader of our fathers, both young, both boys and girls follow the lead of their fathers. And so therefore, I think the direction of a lot of our resources, instead of being directed towards uh, youth, should be directed more towards young men who are starting families. Because if we keep them, we keep the kids. And so that that's kind of the, the major point of the article is we really need to do things to make sure that we attract and keep the young fathers in our parishes. Yeah, and I think it's a bit countercultural and politically incorrect to say, yes. but for for men, we sort of take care of the, the domain of the outside world. And for children, they learn how to deal with adulthood and with the outside world, judging by what their father does. So if dad goes to church, then it's like, okay, well, when I grab to an adult, that's going to be a good thing for me to do. Um, no matter, you know, how much the leftists might hate, you know, me, me saying something like that, that's just, as human nature, right? Right, right. Both men and women, they have their unique roles. They're vitally, both vitally important in different, but in very different ways. And that's the key point here is that mothers provide an, an incredibly important role just for the formation of youth. I mean, it's, it's, it's vital. Anytime a child doesn't have either a mother or a father, it's not the ideal situation. And, but the father, and I think in our culture today, like you just mentioned, the problem is, is that we really denigrate the role of the father and we don't see it as a unique and separate thing that a mother, no matter how well-intentioned she is, she just simply can't replace. She can do her best to try to make up for it if she's in a single mother situation, something like that, but she simply can't really replace the role of a father. And so if we really want to bring our, up our youth in a way that keeps them in the church, it keeps them following Christ. And those dads, they got to be there. They got to be practicing their own faith. And so it, it's, and, you know, I bring up in the article a, a point that this is actually a biblical model of salvation. Because in, if you look, especially in, like in the Old Testament, you see what does God do? He works through individual men as leaders of the community. So we have Abraham or Moses or David. And he is directing them. They are mediators, so to speak, of the salvation of all the people. Unlike the somewhat modern and especially like Protestant way of looking at things where it's everything's a relationship just between God and me and you know God and every individual. And there, of course, is a relationship between God and every individual. But there's also this very important relationship that is mediated 
And of course, the great one mediator is Jesus Christ. And that's how, but again, how does God save the world? Through one man who also happens to be God, but it's through Jesus Christ, our one mediator. And we see that in the structure of the Catholic Church, that we have bishops, we have priests who are those mediators of grace through the sacraments in particular, but also in their teaching ministry. And so they they lead us to Christ. And so in the same way, kind of going down the pyramid, so to speak, fathers then, they're the, they're the head of the domestic church. They are the mediators of grace for their families. And, and, that, and that makes them irreplaceable. And so although we, we kind of want to forget all that these days, that really is the biblical way of doing it, that you have a father who leads his family to salvation. And so once, if you replace that model and try to make it where the youth minister, for example, is, is the direct path for the kid, you have a real problem. You're, you're replacing the, the, the model that God gave us. And so in a sense, and I, I think good youth ministers know this intuitively, that they are simply assisting the parent, just like a good Catholic school isn't the primary educator of the youth, but instead the parents are. And that's yeah. education, both uh, you know spiritual and uh, every other type of education, uh, intellectual, everything. And so what we really need to do, I think, as a church in parishes and dioceses is really support that role much more of fathers and their unique role that God has given them. I mean, because that's, that's the way to remember. If you are a father, God has given you a responsibility for the salvation of your, of your children and of your wife as well. Now, obviously everybody has free will. And so for those fathers whose kids have fallen away, I have a lot of uh, empathy and sympathy for you in that situation, but doesn't take away the point that God does give us this responsibility to, you know, direct our, our children towards salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's dive into some of your concrete strategies. So the first thing that you suggest, speaking of fathers leading their children, um, now in the spiritual sense, is ad orientum worship. Now, some of our listeners have not heard of that term before. Can you explain what that is? How sure. it appeals to the masculine heart, but can you also tackle the misnomer that it's not just about the priest turning his back on people. Right. So ad orientum just means towards the east. And historically, churches were built such that if you're facing the altar, you're facing east. And the reason for that is there's this uh, early church belief that that Christ would return from the east. And so therefore, we're awaiting the coming of Christ. And so that's why our liturgy is directed towards the east. Now, a lot of churches these days aren't actually built like that, but so-called ad orientum when you face the altar during worship with this idea that at least liturgically you are facing towards the coming of the Lord. Now, historically, of course, ad orientum was the normal way of worship in, in the Catholic Church that you, and so therefore the priest would face in the same direction as the people in the sense that he's facing towards the altar as well. Of course, it, it's somewhat denigrated in, in modern times to say he's, he has his back to the people. But that would be like saying if the the sergeant is running into battle, leading his troops, does he have his back to the troops? Well, technically, yes, he has his back to the troops. But what's really happening is he's leading them into battle. That's what's happening. They are following him into battle. And so likewise, we are the church militant. So when when the priest is leading, uh, when he's celebrating mass, 
He is leading the people into battle, so to speak, the spiritual battle. And so that's really what's happening. He's also leading us in worship. He is facing towards God for, you know, because worship, obviously, the mass, who is it directed towards? It's not directed to each of us. It's directed to God. And so, you know, the the priest is talking to God. So in a sense, what we're saying is liturgically, it's, we're all facing towards God in the east, towards the altar. And, of course, the altar represents Christ. And, of course, after the consecration, the the the, the sacred host is Christ. And so that's the, all the kind of the reasoning behind why we're doing this. But what I would argue is, is that this is also a very mas- masculine form of worship because men are more geared towards this idea of being led by a strong leader, being a follower of this strong leader into battle than they are with some of the imagery of maybe sitting around and talking about things. And, and it's not to say men don't do that, but you're more likely, here's, here's just an example. If you have, let's say, for example, a, a party at your house, often what you'll find is the women may be in the kitchen or living room and they're, they're sitting around there and they're chatting where the men are at the grill and they're talking to each other while they're grilling. They're not in a circle talking to each other, but instead, in that sense, but instead they're at the grill, you know, the, maybe the host is, is, is doing the grilling whether, and then they're talking about sports or whatever the case may be. But it's kind of directed in in the same direction, and and so likewise in the worship, this idea of all of of this of the priest leading the people in the worship of God and into battle, I think is is instinctively very attractive to men, and more attractive than the priest facing the people and engaging in what appears more like a dialogue with them. And so I think that's that's a reason why I think ad orientum worship can be very attractive to young men in particular and, and have them more attached to uh, the worship of, of the church in the mass. Yeah. I remember the first time I went to a mass that was, that was said at Orientum. Um, I guess I felt a bit jarred by it at first because I wasn't used to it. Um, but after a couple of months of doing it, suddenly a pin dropped for me or a penny dropped for me, I should say. Um, and, and it just made sense and it was, it was really beautiful. And I felt like this priest by not talking at me all the time was, was preparing me better to receive our Lord in Holy communion. I felt better prepared by the time it came to communion. Um, Yeah. And initially for me, I went to the, uh, Eastern, uh, rites of the Eastern divine liturgy for a while. You see my icons in the background. Yeah, beautiful. Um, but I, uh, and that was the first time I experienced Ad Orientum because the, in the East, the Divine Liturgy uh, has never, they've never celebrated that uh, facing the people. And so they always on Ad Orientum. And I was the same as you, though. Uh, at first, I was kind of like, what? This seemed a little weird. Like, mm. why is he ignoring us? It's almost like yeah. you, you're thinking. It's like, why, Engage why you... me. <laughs> right, exactly. Engage me. Active participation. Yeah. But what I found was is the same as you is when he stopped talking to me, so to speak. Obviously, in, in the homily, for those who haven't experienced Ad Orientum worship, there are certain times the priest does turn to, towards the people. One of them is during the homily, uh, and that is when he's engaging you directly. But most of all the prayers, because if you look at the prayers of the Mass, they're directed towards God. And so, therefore, it starts to make sense psychologically. You're, you're, you're sitting there, kneeling there, staying there, and you... And you start to then focus much more, at least for me, my experience was I start to focus much more on those prayers 
being directed towards God. And I almost forget the priest, which is a good thing. And so I almost forget the priest in, in a sense. And I'm, I'm being more led towards God, just like the, the sergeant who's running in the battle. The, the men are following him, but their focus isn't on the sergeant other than to follow him. They're more than focused on the on the grander scheme of, of the battle. Uh, because they're following the sergeant in, in there. And by the way, I have no army experience. So I have no idea if the sergeant's the one who leads it, but I'm going to stick with that because it sounded good. I just saw so it. Sound, it sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It might not even be called sergeants in the Australian army for all I know. So uh, No, we have sergeants. I'm pretty sure of that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. <laughs> cool. cool. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the next point. And the next one refers to altar serving. So you suggest that only men and boys serve at the altar. Um, so, so why is this important and, um, how does it, I guess, affect for, for boys who are actually in the congregation looking at that, how does that affect their perception of the sanctuary and the mass, um, as opposed to when girls or women might also be serving? Right. By the way, thanks for picking my most controversial ones first to go over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. And what, what it just is a, it, we want to deny this. People want to deny this, but it's just simply true that young boys do not like hanging out with girls in a sense of when, especially at a very early age, just kind of hanging out with girls um, at a very early age, they don't care. But as they get older, especially that like eight to 12 range, they particularly are attracted towards masculine things, towards, towards manly things, towards things that other boys do. So that's why I'd also, I'm very opposed to, for example, uh, co-ed sports. I, I think that, the boys should play, you know, baseball by them, you know, together without girls on the team. And the girls, my, I have six daughters for those who don't know, I have six daughters and one son and number of my girls have played youth sports, but on like a softball team with only girls. And the point of this is that when the boys see girls in, in the activity, they're, they just, they lose, a lot of them lose interest in it at that age, particularly. I know my own son, it was funny because we went to a parish uh, when he was young that had both boy and girl altar servers. He had no interest, never expressed any interest in being an altar server. Then we moved to another uh, state uh, for a job and we started going to a parish where it was only using altar boys. And it was amazing within about two months, he expressed interest in being an altar boy and he had not expressed right. it at all before that. And I think a lot of it had to do with, with, with that fact. And so I think it's, it, it, it generates a very masculine vibe as well when you have all the men up there. And I do think this is important. I, I understand, I, I don't know if women even listen to this podcast, but women might not get this psychological difference between men and women, that women tend to not have a problem with following men, but men do have a problem all, often with following women. And I don't think that's just a cultural thing. I think that's a natural thing. For example, in the in the household, the, the the father should be the leader, the spiritual leader, particularly of the household. And I think that's a very uh, that's that's a that's a Christian way of doing things, and it's and it goes into our human nature. And so I think when young men, when they go up there, and you don't know, have parishes where the, the priest is the only man at the altar, because it's all the altar servers are women, the Eucharistic ministers are women, everybody, the, the readers, uh, lectors are women. And I do think that sends a message to the young men that that religion is a women's, a women's game, that Catholicism is a women's game. Because the truth is, is that more women than men do end up practicing the faith. And that's their great 
virtue is that they 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 understand the importance of faith. Frankly, a lot of times today, better than we men do, and so uh, and they keep the faith going. I mean, my goodness, in some parishes, they're the only ones keeping the faith going, and so. But I do think if we don't have men more involved in the the being like, for example, altar servers is the primary means. I do think that sends a a, a, a subtle message to young men coming that that taking your faith seriously isn't something uh, that's necessary for young men, unless you're a priest, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Okay, so the next one, uh, a bit less controversial, and <laughs> and that's about silence. Inside the church, before and after mass, I remember Eric actually overhearing some people complaining about the fact that that a priest was trying to bring more silence into the church before and after mass, and saying, "No, we don't need to recollect ourselves. We begin praying when the mass begins." So why is it important, especially especially for men, but I think for everyone really, um, to have time for silent prayer before and after? I think a number of reasons. No, the first one is simply the fact that in at least in most most Catholic parishes, the tabernacle is in the, the church. And so where you are, our Lord is. And so I think by giving silence in that area at all times, it makes everybody immediately recognize that this is a holy place, that this is special. I mean, for example, what, what parent lets their kid run around and whoop it up in the, in the church? And it's, they're not going to do that because they understand there's something they shouldn't let them do that because they understand it's not we're not at the playground or something like that. This is a time of sacred. This is a place, a sacred place. And so, therefore, silence has always been a way in which humans have designated and responded to sacredness. And you see that if, if something's sacred, you fall down your knees and you're silent. And so that is something by having silence in in the church before and after mass, we're reminding everybody who walks in, this isn't just a hall, this isn't a, a gathering space or anything like that. It's a it's a place for worship and it's sacred. And so that that's part and that's for of course for everybody. I would also say for men though, I think silence denotes a certain seriousness. If everybody's just gabbing about what they did th- this past week, I think it 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 gives a message that what we're about to do at the mass isn't really that serious, isn't really that important. It's just like before you go to a ball game and you're sitting in the stands chatting about what we did last week. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, because you're at the ball game. You get, and you probably want, you know, while you're watching, you're still doing it. But this is not like that. Or if you're sitting around the water cooler at work, the same thing. Here, what, what we have is a, a, a message that what we're about to do is is literally the most important activity we can engage in, the holy sacrifice of the mass. And so that silence gives that message, that message of seriousness that that and that I think men in particular really respond to. And if you notice with a couple of these, like all these things we've said so far, they're all subtle in the sense that none of them are saying, hey, men, come join us. Hey, men, be better Catholics. But I do think they're sending signals to men subconsciously, perhaps telling them that this is a serious, sacred event and that we should be treating it as such. And I think men in particular respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. That's so true. And it, and it lends to our need for, for mental prayer as well outside of the mass, which 
also we can never we're never yeah we're never really prepared for mass we prepare as best we can but what's going on is so beyond us it's like Mm -hmm. we do our best but absolutely we need that time of prayer to say lord i really need you to to help me to understand at least on some level what's going on to receive these graces to be properly disposed to receive the graces uh that that are going to be offered to me because you know, in the extreme case, for example, if you're in mortal sin, you're not going to receive and you receive communion, you're not receiving graces. In fact, St. Paul says you're receiving condemnation. Right. And so that's the extreme side. But we want to go as much as possible. The subjective is is our response to these graces, because objectively, Christ is going to be present. Objectively, graces are going to be offered. God has promised this. And so it just can't not happen if the priest invalidly you know, uh, celebrates mass. And so, but subjectively, our response to it, how, how much grace we receive is, is very dependent upon our dispositions. And one of the best way to have a good disposition for mass is that time of prayer. I mean, we should start it. Here's something I, I heard uh, somebody recommend years ago, and I've taken it up, and I think it's a great idea, is the night before, Saturday night, you gather your family together, and the father leads and what he does, is you read the scripture readings for the next day, the mass readings. You read it, and then you reflect on it with your your, your wife and your children, mm. so that the next day, when those readings come up, you really hear them and you really understand them a bit more before the priest even begins his homily. And that's yeah. that's just one way that you're preparing to receive. In this case, the graces that we receive in in the liturgy of the word during the, the, the proclamation of the gospel and the reading of the, the scriptures. And we do other, and of course the prayer right beforehand as well, before mass starts, of course we can be really praying for the graces we receive in the Eucharist. And so I think that's an important reason why we want silence in the church. And, and afterwards we should be giving thanksgiving to God for the graces he has given us. I mean, we don't want to be like the nine lepers who, who were healed and just left. We want to be the one leper who came back, leper who came back and thanked the Lord. And so that's what we want to do right after mass. And that's why we want silence during that time as well. And then once we leave the church, of course, that's, it's very important at that point to have a, a social uh, interaction with our fellow parishioners to build up community, because I do think community is very important in a parish. And so we want to do that, but we do it outside of the sacred space. Yeah. I love that you made that connection with the, with the lepers guys go out there and, and be the one leper. Um, right. And it's that, that sort of signifies, you know, even from the scriptural point of view that, that it's going to be the unpopular route in many cases, but it's, but it's going to be the best thing for our souls. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think if your kids see you kneeling, mm-hmm. thanking God after mass, I think that's an imagery that never leaves them. I, I think yeah. that seeing their father kneeling before mass and praying, kneeling after mass and praying, silently i think that really ingrains in them a way of looking at god that cannot be replaced by any words you might say yeah it's incredible how how kids absorb these things i mean i've got a well he's about to be two next month um and he knows how to say jesus and amen and um (laughs) i give him a blessing at the end of every night and now he he, you know he he puts his head forward for me to bless him at the end of the night Beautiful. Um, and and it just shows you like how, how how good this can be if we if we just take the lead as men in in, in leading our families in prayer. Um, right. So I exhort all you guys to do that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, 
Yeah, so, okay, so the next point is about music and that we should use traditional hymns. Um, Eric, why is the genre of music that we use at Mass important? A lot of parishes, uh, you know, want to engage by using things that appeal to emotion and, you know, get your heart pumping a bit more. Um, so why traditional hymns? Well, I would argue that it, it's the same reason as the, what I just said before about the silence uh, before and after Mass is that it denotes a seriousness because instead of, I mean, let's be honest, most, I don't know about in Australia, but in America at least, a lot of the music that we sing is stuck in the 1970s. And it's just, okay, (laughs) that's too bad. It just doesn't (laughs) give a very serious vibe. I mean, for lack of a better term, it it gives a a vibe of that we're just here to kind of sit around around the the fireside and and sing kumbaya or whatever the case may be. And I think that traditional hymns that have these really solid lyrics that that are very theologically rich, even though you might not realize it, but also the music itself is very uh, serious. I think what that does, again, gives this vibe that, okay, this is not like outside. And that's the thing is there's this, effort to try to make the celebration of mass as much like the outside world as possible. And I would argue we need to do the opposite because we don't want to be like the world. I mean, it, it says that in the scriptures that we don't want to be like the world. We want to be a part from the world. Now we're in it. We can't help that. And that's how that's where God has put us, but we're not of the world. And so I really think this effort to make the mass as much like the outside world as possible is turning people away, particularly men because they don't see it as a something to sacrifice for, to, to treat differently and, and, and to take seriously because it doesn't seem to be being taken seriously by the, by the parish itself, by all these different signals, including the music. And so if you're singing the, the, some you know, guitar tune from 1975 versus a, uh, maybe using the organ as beautiful song from 1875, I think it really does does send a message. Now, I do know there are, like our parish at times, it has some modern music in the sense that it's not modern sounding, it's a traditional sounding, but it was written recently. I mean, and so it's not that saying that only music written before 1950, for example, is valid or anything silly like that, but the style is the traditional. Of course, Gregorian chant is 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 awesome, and that's what Vatican II said really should be given a certain pride of place. But but the, the real traditional music, I think, does lend itself to a seriousness that we are entering into a holy place. We are entering into a, a time that is set apart, a time and a place set apart. And so we should treat it like that. And I think men in particular really respond to that. And I think kids, you know, we're talking about the youth ministry before. I think kids, they recognize, okay, this is different. They start to treat their time in church differently than they do Elsewhere, like here's something I'm just going to this is completely random and wasn't brought in my article. But in our family, for example, we we never let our kids at any age have toys in the pews or food in the pews. I, that kind of drives me crazy, I'll be honest. But um, but what we always do is we will bring them because the little ones, uh, I know they can get a little bit squirrely. And but we let them, for example, have a children's missile or a saint book or something like that with nice pictures that they can look through during the mass because that, that that's okay. And if you do that, it does. I mean, yes, 
for parents of very young children, I, I, my youngest is five now, so I'm a little bit, I've moved beyond uh, the, the really hard years as far as that goes. I'm in the middle of that. <laughs> yes. And God bless you because most, I know when I, my kids were two, I have seven kids. And when my, my kids were two, most of them, mass often involved going to the back, going to the back, going, you know, a lot of that. Um, but the, I do think over time what happens is if you establish that early on, that in the pew, you're quiet, you're not talking, and you only can maybe look at a missile or a picture book of saints or something like that. That's the only thing I do think it, it sinks in and it gives them a foundation that they realize this is a time that is different from other times. It's not going downstairs to the playroom or something like that. So I, th- I think the, all those things I also think resonates with with uh, men in particular. Yeah. And I just want to expand on on the point a little bit about about the genre because I think traditional hymns have organically developed from Gregorian chant, which you've mentioned, and Gregorian chant really finds its origins in in the synagogue, right? I mean, it, they developed out of out of prayer. Christ sung some of the same Gregorian chants that are still around today. I think the the traditional um, Our Father chant is is based on a melody that came from the synagogue uh, that, you know, Christ himself would have sung while he was in yes. there, which I just think right. is just so beautiful. And then if you've got these genres, which are quite different to that, that didn't develop organically from that, they're really taking a style of music that was developed in a completely secular uh, environment. Um, and, and I really think that that's got to have, that's got to have some psychological spiritual effect that, that the other stuff doesn't, that was really dedicated to God. Right, right. And, and I think people might say in a negative sense, well, this music, it, it has no connection to anything else in the outside world. It's like, yeah, you're right. That, that's exactly right. When you start singing a hymn, everybody, a, a traditional hymn, everybody, even non-Catholics know this is a religious song. Yeah. When you start singing a lot of the music that we hear at Mass today, and you, if you took it outside of the Mass into a non-Catholic, somebody who has no, no knowledge of it, he may or may not know if he doesn't, especially if he doesn't hear the lyrics, he may not know that this is even religious in any way, shape or form. And so the, the music itself, the form of the music itself, it lends itself to telling people this is a religious event. And so it should be treated in a sacred fashion. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So the last point that you make in your article, Eric, is that you ask us to tell it like it is um, to fight secularism and the crisis in the church. So give us some examples of what that might look like at a parish level or even just at an even smaller level of a men's group. I think really it's talking about some of those forbidden topics that in the church we've told ourselves we can't talk about. I would think uh, one would be contraception, the idea that the, the teaching that contraception is immoral and, and all, artificial contraception in all situations is immoral. And so we, we avoid that topic and studies have shown that most Catholics uh, at some point in their life have, have used artificial contraception. And even though that is a, a grave matter and a sin. So that would be an example. Another example would be divorce. I think that's probably even more controversial yeah. because we have so many people who are divorced and, but we have to talk about the fact, I mean, the, the scriptures themselves say God hates divorce mm-hmm. and divorce is a terrible thing. And it's, it, it's, Probably, I would argue it's probably the most destructive force in Western civilization today is divorce. 
And so we need to touch them. Now, of course, we, we, we know that when we do that, there's a lot of divorced people in our parishes. And so it's, it's one of those things we always say, I always say that we, we set up the ideal and we do not move the ideal down at all. The ideal has to stay here. But what we do is we reach down in mercy for those, which is all of us at some time or another, who have not reached the ideal and we lift them up. We don't, we, we don't like, uh, stomp on them, but we lift them up, but we do not move that ideal down. And so divorce is another topic that I think we need to be very forthright about and tell it like it is that divorce is, is an evil in, in society. Another example is hell. I mean, we just don't talk about hell. I mean, it's just the fact that we may go there. <laughs> And it's a terrible thing if we do. And it's the worst. It's literally the worst thing in the world to go to hell and that people can go to hell. It's not just Hitler and Stalin who are going to hell. If we look at how the church has always taught that hell is a destination that is a is a possibility for every one of us. And we don't want to live our faith in fear. But at the same time, there should be a healthy fear, a fear of God. That's what the scripture says at the beginning of wisdom. But that is a basis. A lot of people come to the faith and begin their following of God through a fear of hell. When I was, I grew up Protestant, but I remember being, I want to say like fifth or sixth grade. And I don't know if it was from reading the Bible or something the pastor said or what it was, but I remember hearing about hell and realizing I do not want to go there. And I was scared to death I, I could go there. Now, is that a full faith? No, but that's the stepping stone that is legitimate. It's a valid step. In fact, I would say everybody in their faith pilgrimage should at some point probably need to take that step of fearing that if they're not faithful to God, that they will go to hell. And so we need to bring that up because I don't know about you, but I almost never, in typical parishes, I would never hear hell preached about or talked about. But those are the type of things I, I think I think it's somewhat, again, it's one of these counterintuitive things where men in particular, they need to be challenged. They need to be told, if you don't do this, then this really bad thing will happen. And I think they step up to it. I really do believe yes. that most men want to step up to the plate and say, yes, I can, I can do this and I will sacrifice. I will do what's needed. And just there's another example talking about the, the need for sacrifice. We don't talk about that in penance. Penance is a word that we've almost forgotten in the church, but yet we need to do that. And I think men, I really do believe men will respond to that. I think they just haven't been challenged. And so a lot of times what we do is we refrain from these things because we're scared of turning people away. And this is not just the priest, but this is also in our men's groups and, and other, and just in, in relationships with our neighbors and our family members. Yeah. I think we're so afraid of turning people away. It's, it's a, it's a good intention because we don't want, we've seen so many people turn away from the faith. We don't want that to happen. So we do everything we can to make it palatable for them. But I honestly think that that has the opposite impact and it turns more people away. And what we really need to do is to challenge people and say, the Lord is calling you to these great heights and he will give you the grace to reach them. You can't actually reach them on your own. So, you know, all your penances and, and all your and all your prayers, as, as we know, if you're not really faithful to the Lord, they're, they're not going to be effective. But what we do want to do is call people to this higher level, that this idea that, yes, do penances for your family, for your friends, do penances for the church. Uh, speak about hell, know that it exists and, and, and warn people. 
that they could be bound for hell and, and confront people about divorce and, and, and talk about that. And we do it always in love. I mean, charity does not mean we avoid these topics, but it also doesn't mean we're jerks either, you know, when we talk about it. And you have to know the situation and, and how you, when is the time for mercy, uh, specifically speaking of it, and when is the time for justice? And, and, and obviously they're always related. But I think these are things that I do think attract men, this idea of calling. And here's an example. I, I remember when I was, uh, when my kids were a little younger, this is a number of years ago, I remember seeing at a parish we, we were visiting and they had a sign up about becoming an altar server. And they, the sign was basically like, it's no big deal. It's easy. Anybody can do it. Let's go. And then that day I went to I was at a baseball field and I saw a sign for this travel baseball team. And it was talking about how it will mean a lot of commitment. You have to be serious about, about playing. You have to be serious about winning. And we only are going to take people who are serious and really want to get to the next level. Mm. And I thought to myself, what a dichotomy for, for, for young people who want to take seriously what they're doing, which one of these is more attractive? I'd say the baseball flyer. They're like, yeah, I want to take it to the next level. I want to be this great thing. That's what I'm striving for. Uh, John Paul II was very good at that, at, at, at making it something that we're trying to strive for to be great, to be great at. Whereas the, the altar server, anybody can do it. Well, if anybody can do it, why should I bother? And so that's how we want, I think, to present the faith is this, this challenge. And that includes talking about these controversial things and challenging people to live up to it. Don't use contraception. Don't get divorced. Uh, don't, you know, do these things and, and do penances. All these things, I think, attract everybody, but I think they attract men in particular. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the most charitable ways to bring these things up is to simply point to the lives of the saints. Because if you look at how they lived their lives, they were doing all this stuff. So right. I don't have to put it on myself to be the judgmental one who says, you've got it all wrong. You need to step up. You need to do this. Um, in some relationships, obviously that will work. And especially probably with a lot of guys, it will work. Um, but I think if we're worried about that, it's just good in any case to bring the saints into the conversation and say, okay, well, we know for sure that these people are in heaven. Um, there's been miracles attributed to them and, and everybody attested to the holy lives that they lived. And this is how they lived their lives on a daily basis. So maybe that should be our standard. Right, right. We, we're not striving to slip into purgatory. That's not our goal. Yeah. <laughs> our goal is sainthood. I mean, it's not even just getting to heaven. It's it's sainthood in the sense of not just that we get in heaven, but that we're a role model, which is what the saint, the canonized saints are, a role model for everybody that we act. That's what we're striving for. And will we fail? Yes. Every single day, the righteous man falls seven times a day, I think the scriptures say. And so we want to have this, again, this ideal that is extreme. I mean, the ideal is literally humanly impossible. And so, but that's the idea we want to strive for, knowing that Christ will give us the grace. And I think people respond to that. I really do think that the average man, in particular, young person as well, they really respond to that. And I think you're right. Setting the saints up as an example. Here's something, just a a practical tip uh, made for young dads listening here. What we did, we instituted, we we always pray at bedtime together as a family. It's 830, we pray. But then... When the kids get to a certain age where their bedtime is a little bit later, maybe like the older kids, and let's say it's nine o'clock, what we'll do is we'll pray at eight thirty with the young ones. The young ones we put down down to bed, and then the older ones they spend a half hour in spiritual reading, which is almost always a saint book. And you can do this as as, as 
you know, at a very, once they're able to read basically, and you know, your bedtimes and all that had to coordinate. But that way, every single night for a half hour, they're reading. And I, I have the kids do that until they leave the house. I mean, my 17 year old son, he is, uh, he's down here. He's reading like, you know, a lot more advanced theology or, or spiritual works now. But he started off reading, uh, those young saint books. And I think it's just something where it ingrains in them. This is what we're striving for the saints. We're striving to be like them. And so we can always pull from the, that experience of this high ideal that we're striving for. Yeah. Well, that's a great piece of advice for me. I think I'm definitely going to incorporate that. Uh, we've loved it. I think it's been a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to bring us, um, back to the present. Um, just on some of the other things that you that you've been working on, um, because I heard in your interview with Timothy Flanders at Meaning of Catholic that you're currently working on a book about religious indifferentism, and I think you know we've been talking a little bit about the difference between men and women, and I think indifferentism has really been a scourge on men in the church or men in society, really, not even just men in the church. Um, can you tell us a bit about that book? Um, how religious indifferentism has spread over the past few decades, especially in Catholic men, and what we can do about that. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. The it was it's somewhat related. To what I was, it's the same idea of what I was talking about, where the church is a sacred place; it's set apart, and you see it as very holy and different. And what has happened is, and there's a lot of reasons for this, and I get into a lot of them in the book, both within the church and outside the church in the culture, we have equalized all religions. We have made it where it doesn't matter if you're Catholic, if you're Protestant, if you're Jewish, if you're Islam, Muslim, if you're Hindu, if you're atheist, it just doesn't matter because as long as you're a decent person, you're going to get to heaven. And that is a scourge. It really is because it doesn't recognize that The Catholic Church is the Church of Christ. It's a church founded by Jesus Christ, and he wants us to be a member of his Catholic Church. If we want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, we we, we need to be a member of the Catholic Church and practice the faith as the church has dictated we should, receiving the sacraments, being baptized, of course, and receiving the sacraments regularly of communion and confession. And so, but what happens is we have this indifferentism that both infects how we relate to others but also our own spiritual life. So in our own spiritual life, we, we tend to then start lowering that idea of like I talked about, like, ah, oh, God's going to be, you know, I'm, I'm not going to like be damned if I don't do this prayer or something like that. But that starts to add up and we start to presume on God's mercy. And that's a real sin. We talk a lot about God's mercy and it's true. God's mercy is infinite, but we can presume upon that. And, and, and if we presume upon that, God isn't merciful when we don't ask for forgiveness. And we, if we don't go to him and say, we're sorry, it's like, you know, the product story of the prodigal son is that great story of mercy. The father runs out. But what had to happen first? The young man had to leave from and come, start coming back. Now, once he started coming back, what does the father do? He races to him. But we, so we don't want to presume that. And I think a certain indifferentism does that. It presumes on that, but it also impacts how we how we relate to others. I was the director of evangelization for five years for a diocese. And I saw this time and time again, where indifferentism is really the the thing that we're fighting against in evangelization, that people just don't think it's that important. If 
their friends or family members are Catholic or if they're Protestant or, or if they're whatever, because it, it just doesn't matter, but it really does matter. And so I really think this is something that impacts us spiritually ourselves, but also our, our, the mission of the church. I mean, the, the Christianity is at its heart a missionary religion. I mean, that's the, the final word to Jesus to the apostles go therefore and, and preach the gospel and baptize and teach them all that I have commanded you. He sent them out. And every one of us are called to be sent out. That's what apostle means, to be sent out. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be, we have to be sent out. But if we're indifferent, if we don't think it really matters what religion you practice or even how well you practice religion, then we're not going to go out and we're, and we're not obeying a command of the Lord. And I think men, if they're told, here's your mission, if you choose to accept it, and then you go out and, and you do it. I think men respond to that. It's the same thing we've been talking about this whole time. I, I really do think they respond to that and they say, yes, I, there is more to life than just work, going to work each day, putting in my time and then crashing in front of the TV at night. That's an indifferent lifestyle, frankly, is, is just doing that. Instead, we make our work a place of holiness that we can that we can really offer up to God. We make our family time a, a, a time in which we're, we're being directed towards God. It doesn't mean we don't hang out and play. Obviously, my, I mean, my kids have played lots of sports and things like that, but everything is directed towards the glory of God. And we don't spend our time just vegetating in front of the TV all the time. That, that breeds indifferentism, if nothing does. And it, instead, we're, we're actively, for example, maybe reading theology, studying the faith, uh, spending more time in prayer, uh, leading our kids in prayer, all these things, that is the anti-indifferent uh, attitude. And I think it, it, it raises up saints and it, it really can reform the church. And, and if men do that, all, the, 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 the women and the children, so to speak, will follow. And so I think that's what, we're, that's what we really want what men to do. That's inspiring, Eric. Thank you so much for that. And on that note, how can you challenge our listeners and viewers um, this week? What would you like to, something practical that the guys can do over the next coming weeks um, to, to get away from this indifferentism and, and, and step up and be the, the spiritual leaders that we're called to be? I think one of the things in the church that we've forgotten to do is fasting. I think we don't really fast anymore. And I think it would be great if men started to fast more often and, and, and really fast. I mean, Obviously, everybody's medical conditions can have medical conditions that preclude the level of fasting, and you have to be responsible because we're supposed to take care of our bodies. But I also think that most of us can fast a lot more than we think we can. I know for, for years I didn't fast at all, didn't think I could, and then I started to to really do it, and I found out medically that was definitely not – it's a lot more healthy than I thought. And right. so – I really think fasting on a regular basis, particularly on Fridays, the day that the church tells us is a day of penance because that's the day our Lord died. And so if we would fast, particularly for our families and for the church, for the salvation of souls. And so your fast could be, for example, not eating breakfast. It could be not eating breakfast or lunch. It could be a full day fast, but you don't have any, you don't have any snacks and all these things. And I think what happens is when you start getting, let's say you, let's say you regularly eat breakfast every day and you don't and you decide on Friday, you don't, you don't eat breakfast. It might be 10 o'clock in the morning and you're feeling it, but that is the moment where you offer that up to God in, in reparation for sin and for the salvation of souls, for your family, for the church. And it's an opportunity for prayer. 
And so I really think that we can do it. And it is hard in, at first, but it does get better. But I think men in particular really have to start fasting again and really uh, offering that up. For that, that's, that's our leadership. If we fast priests as well, obviously they're, they're our spiritual fathers. And so they do it as well. So I, that would be my encouragement is, and also just be clear, like everything, I think you, you start slow and you move your way up. If you've never fasted before, don't try to do a 24 hour fast, for example, out of the blue. What you do is you just don't eat breakfast, for example, or, or you even eat later. If, if it's, if it's, if you normally eat every morning at seven o'clock, maybe you don't eat until 10 or something like that. And then you push it the next week, maybe to 11 or something like that. Uh, we need to understand because what happens is otherwise you fall. My, my first Lent as a Catholic, I decided to give up food for Lent. I, I was so enthusiastic. I was this young guy. I was in college. I was all like, oh yeah, I'm Catholic now. I'm awesome and stuff like that. And of course we all can imagine what happened. I failed miserably. I was a, <laughs> I was a jerk to everybody around me for the first few days. And I finally just gave up by like the sun, the first Sunday of Lent. Don't do that. <laughs> but I do think we can, if we gradually, what we will find, you will be amazed men and you will find it both Physically, it's very healthy, but also it's spiritually uplifting, and you find that you will focus your prayer. So fasting would be my suggestion. Start a, a program of fasting uh, in your life, uh, particularly for your family and for the church. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I, I can also second what you said about I thought that I couldn't fast very much at all, and then, and then I started to, to actually do it a bit more. Uh, one of the things that helped me was um, – I sort of realized that part of the reason I was getting headaches when I tried to fast wasn't because of how hungry I was. It was because I was actually starting to get a little bit stressed and anxious that I was going without food. And I was actually yeah. worrying about myself going without food. And once I, be, once I was able to sort of calm myself down, get myself into a place of peace, you know, just go away, pray for a bit. You're going to be okay. You know, this is definitely medically possible. Um, then I found that the headaches went away. So I wasn't actually getting a hunger headache. I was just stressing out about it. So it's like you can just be at peace and realize that this is a possibility for you. Yeah, hunger, just to, just to be clear, hunger is mostly psychological. I mean, obviously not mm. when you get really long and you have people starving, things like that. But what I'm saying is hunger pangs, I should say, is yeah. mostly psychological. Yeah. It's your body knows, hey, I usually eat eight in the morning and I'm not eating now. So I need to tell the body, I need to tell the brain, hey, you know, I'm, you need to eat because we, this is what we always do. And so it's very much psychological. It's not an actual physical need that if you, if you don't eat, for example, somehow it's unhealthy. No, it, yeah. it's, it, that's not the case. So those hunger pains are, are, are in your head. I mean, they're real. I mean, don't, don't want to get that. That's not the case. They're real. But, but if you offer up those hunger pains, I really think that that ends up psychologically, it, it, it mentally gets you realizing they're not really that big a deal. And also just an offering up of a little sacrifice. It's this little sacrifice. And, and I think so a lot of people do. And if you're not quite sure, I recommend there's lots of stuff on the Internet and like books and stuff now written about uh, how to fast uh, medically. Uh, Dr. Jason Fung is a, a world renowned. I think he's in Canada talking about it. look up his name or something for how to fast. So but then uh, I just that, that I think if we if we have more men fasting, I really think for the church and for their families, I really think it would make a, a dramatic difference in the church. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Eric, would you like to say a closing prayer? Sure, I would be happy to. So Great. Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about you, to encourage men to follow you. And we ask that you would grace all the men listening to this uh, this podcast 
that they would become men of faith, leaders in their families, leaders in, in their parishes, leaders in the world that would lead people to Jesus Christ. And we also ask that all uh, men that we would, all Catholic men that we become closer to Our Lady, uh, the mother of us all, and we would pray to her right now. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Eric Sammons. Uh, how can guys follow what you're doing, um, books, uh, articles, videos? Um, what would you recommend? Uh, I have a website, ericsammons.com. That's probably the easiest way. I'm also on Twitter. If you look up Eric Sammons, you'll find me. Uh, there's a couple of Eric Sammons, but it will be obvious which one I am. So, yeah, um, seen that's probably, yeah exactly. <laughs> so that's that the easiest way. Just go to my website or go to Twitter, and I'll be there. Fantastic. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. Um, do as Eric says, get fasting, and um, and also check out his works and stay tuned for his book on religious indifferentism. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and until next time, God bless you all and keep striving for greatness. Thank you all and God bless.